This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME. We also have the support of lynda.com, who with over 2,000 high quality and engaging videos, provides a wide breadth of courses from beginners to advanced. lynda.com is there to help you learn creative software and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. To take advantage of their free seven day trial, visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame. That's L-Y-N-D-A forward slash the candid frame. You can now download the latest episode of the candid frame directly to your smartphone or tablet using the candid frame app available for Apple iOS, Android, and windows eight. You can automatically receive and listen to the latest episode minutes after it's released. Mark and download your favorites or send your comments and suggestions directly to me via the app. Download it today using your favorite app store or click on the links in the show notes found at the Candid Frame website. This is X, and welcome to another episode of the show. At the beginning of January, I attended New Media Expo, which is a trade show geared for podcasters, bloggers, and people creating new media for outlets like YouTube. It was the first time for me to be surrounded by others who are interested in or have been creating content specifically for the internet. It was a great opportunity to meet others who are as passionate about using podcasting as a means for inspiring and educating people. It provided me the chance to meet in person some folk that I had come to know virtually. One of them is Ted Forbes, who is a fellow podcaster who you may know because of his podcast and YouTube channel called The Art of Photography. Ted's show and his sensibility about photography really speaks to me, which is why his program is one of my favorite photography-based shows. If you haven't checked it out yet, I encourage you to do so by subscribing to the podcast and his YouTube channel. He brings his own particular approach to discussing photography. Because Ted has an outlet where you can find out more about him, this episode is less of an exploration of an individual artist and more a chat between two friends on the topic of photography. It's a little different, but I hope you enjoy our conversation with Ted Forbes. Well, Ted, welcome to The Candid Frame. I had such a pleasure having the chance to meet you in person uh, in Texas after watching your your videos and listening to your your podcast. So, oh, my gosh. Uh, well, the, the feeling is mutual on that. It was uh, – <laughs> we didn't we didn't know the other one was going to be at New Media Expo, I don't think. No, no, no. I, yeah, I, I, I think I knew you just before I left, and so I just knew to keep an eye out for you, and then I spotted you, and then I was like, hey, 
I know you. <laughs> well, we were in a session and you were sitting in front of me and then you stood up to ask a question. I don't remember what the oh, session was. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. You stood up to ask a question. I was like, wait, Abarian X, I know him. That's because <laughs> I think we knew each other in Google Plus and some stuff before. But but uh, yeah, that was really cool. Actually, finally, you know, it's like the miracle of the Internet when you finally meet your virtual friends in person. It's uh, it's really a cool thing. It's also a little bit surreal. You know? It is. It's like you're still <laughs> a perfect stranger. But hey, I know you. <laughs> well, or in your case, it's like I know your voice. But I'm not used to seeing you talk, so it's like, wait a minute, this is kind of strange. But, yeah. you know, but then you get over it quick. No, we had a good time. It was a good conference. Yeah. Well, I've been enjoying the work that you've been doing with with your show, The Art of Photography. And, uh, Thank you. I especially appreciate the fact that you've been focusing on you know, photographers that aren't the, you know, the current trend. Right. You know, we have so many personalities in photography, which has always been the case, but especially in this age of, you know, YouTube and online learning and, and so on and so forth. Uh, there are a lot of photographers who are, are, are great, but that most people are just don't know anything about. And the stuff sure. that you've done with uh, Fred Herzog, uh, Gordon Parks, uh, to just name a few, uh, have been a treat for me, even though I know a, a good amount um, uh, about them. I'm sure. really excited that the people who are listening and watching your uh, your show are discovering them uh, for themselves for, for maybe the first time. And why is that important to you? Why do you feel like sharing images and the stories behind these photographs and the stories of these photographers is something that you want to make part of what you do. Well, I'm actually glad you asked that. For the record, I did not know you were going to ask that question in case you thought that maybe that was pre-planned. But no, you know, it's funny because the whole reason, I mean, I got into podcasting kind of by accident, I think. And I've always had just a tremendous passion for photography. And I sort of flirted with it on and off as a vocation. But it, for me, it's always been a personal thing. And, and I love photography because it is photography. You know, the way I grew up and some of these people that I used to look up to, uh, particularly people like Arnold Newman, you know, it was the famous Stravinsky photo of the piano that made me want to all of a sudden, I got to get a camera. I want to make pictures, you know. One of the things I've noticed, particularly with the shift, I think there's been two shifts uh, in technology that I think have been both exciting and well, they've been exciting. I think, you know, the advent of digital photography becoming affordable and most people have access to that now. And then I think also the you know proliferation of what we do via the Internet are kind of like this this changing moment in the late 90s and the 2000s that brought a lot of new people into photography that previously it might have been inaccessible to, you know, the expensive film or whatever it was. And, you know, as a result, there's a lot of, you know, you, what you just referred to. I think there's famous people on Google Plus, you know, and there's there's well-known photographers who are shooting today and they do brilliant work. But what's interesting is I think there's this a little bit of a failure for people to realize the history and the tradition that comes before us in photography. And some of it's very recent. And when I cover like, for instance, I think Saul Leader is one of the big ones. And, and Saul is a guy I never knew who he was until, you know, probably the early 2000s because he was just kind of a not average is the bad word for it. But I mean, he was he was not a huge name. He, he was uh, a good photographer, who had a steady career doing black and white work for magazines and fashion. And he did all this color personal work that that was discovered much later. And so I think some of it is just the way history has unfolded. And all of a sudden there are these people, you know, the Fred Herzogs or the or the Saul leaders that that we may not have known as much about before. But, you know, even the other people like Arnold Newman, who has always been a big name or, you know, Dean Arbus or somebody like that. Uh, and it's amazing how many younger photographers just don't know they exist. And it's just I don't think it's the fault of anything. I just don't think they know where to look. And that's always just, you know, when I started this show kind of as an accident, it's been something that 
unfolded because I just wanted to do a photography show that was one different than what was out there. So I did want to talk a lot about equipment and gear and toys and stuff. I mean, that's that stuff's fun, too. But there are already like three successful podcasts that did that. And I want to do something different. So I just I'll just do a photography podcast on what I would want to hear or watch if I were viewing, you know. And so that's when I started kind of doing photography literature stuff with with, uh, you know, some of the the past masters, if you will, or even I mean, yeah, and I've covered some contemporary people like we've done Dan Winters and a couple of guys like that. But I just kind of try and keep it open and I try and keep it a little bit on this discovery level. You know, there are a lot of people. It's amazing. I got emails after doing the Fred Herzog episode and they were Canadian photographers. They're like, oh, my gosh, you covered a Canadian. This is amazing. And I'd never heard of him. And, you know, you open that door to a whole bunch of work that that has this beauty f- that speaks to people. And, you know, I think it's easy sometimes with somebody like Fred Herzog or even Saul Lear because their work, both those individuals have a very nostalgic quality to their work. Um, they're showing color in the 1950s and 60s and you know maybe a little bit in the 70s that I think that people equate with growing up as kids or with maybe a world their parents viewed or something. So there, there is that nostalgic element to it that I think gives them a lift. And you don't see that in contemporary work as much. Um, so it just depends. I mean, then on the other end, you have somebody like a Michael Kenna, who is, you know, one of the leading fine art photographers in the world today. And his work looks completely different. And, you know, I think that's a discovery for people, too, that that, that don't know some of these guys. So it's it's been a lot of fun to do those types of shows. And, you know, I call them <laughs> the term photography lit is kind of corny, too. I mean, you know, I was a music student. That's what my degree is in. And so I had a lot of formal training in that. And that was always one of the weird things with visual arts is they do not have just the way you study music or the way you study art is very different. And in music, uh, it's largely based on tradition or even, you know, if you're a kid learning how to play guitar and maybe it's Eddie Van Halen guitar solos that you're trying to learn. So you kind of learn by copying and in the visual arts, you can get into it without needing to copy, I guess. And so people just don't pay attention to the the stuff that came before them in the same way. So I think I've just kind of landed on something with doing those types of episodes that that is fresh to some people that's, you know, it's about discovery. And, 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 and like you said, I mean, you know, you're familiar with Gordon Parks and a lot of these guys, and it's still fun to go look at the, that work. And those are a lot of fun for me to actually put together. Uh, because, you know, particularly with Gordon, who's one of my favorite photographers and to be able to just go through and select work that you want to show and you get to revisit and Gordon, somebody I hadn't looked at in a long time. And it's like, it's a nice homecoming with that. Cause it's, you know, he's one of those guys whose work speaks so loudly, I think to me and a lot of other people too. So anyway, yeah. they've been fun to do. You, you mentioned the, um, Stravinsky shot. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What, what was so remarkable about that photograph that inspired you to want to pick up a, a camera? You know, it's funny. It's an interesting question. I mean, the obvious answer is what's not remarkable about that. But it, at the time that I saw that, um, I'll tell you the story behind it. Um, my, my father was an illustrator and did a lot of work for commercial publications back then when Sports Illustrated actually used to use illustrations on the cover. And, you know, a lot of times it would be, you know, a boxing match of two boxers who had never actually boxed before. So you can't use photographs. So they'd go to illustration. So as a result, we my friend, my parents had a lot of friends that were, you know, in the arts. And, and one of their friends was a photographer. And he had been a former assistant of Arnold Newman. And they had, oh, this large print of that piece in their dining room. I remember going in and seeing it. And at the time, I mean, I was probably eight years old, 10 years old, something like that. 
and seeing this image. And I, at that point, I had no idea what was speaking to me probably in that picture. And for those of you who haven't seen it, if you just go Google Arnold Newman Stravinsky, it'll come up. Uh, it, but it's a portrait of Arnold – or excuse me. It's a portrait of Stravinsky sitting at a piano. And the way it's cropped is his head is kind of at the bottom left-hand side of the picture. And then the lid of the piano, it's just this simple galumphing black shape against a white background. And very little information is given to you, but it's obvious it's a piano. So I think part of it is this minimalist quality that appealed to me. I think part of it was there was a little bit of mystery. It's this black and white image. And, you know, as a kid, I'm you know, used to taking my own pictures and getting them developed at the drugstore in color. Uh, and, you know, it, it, and I think that was what Arnold Newman was so good at with those environmental portraits is, is at that at the age of eight or ten, I did not know who Igor Stravinsky was. But you could tell he was a musician because he's defined by this piano. And there's also this this additional metaphor of the way a piano lid is shaped. It looks like a lowercase b or even the flat symbol, which you see in music a lot. And, of course, that was intentional from Newman. I mean, he was he was kind of going for that. Uh, but, you know, I just think there was you know, I've, I've mentioned all the compositional elements. I mean, there's rule of thirds going on in there. There's, you know, uh, division of, of negative and positive space. That's uh, contrast. There's minimalism. There's all these things that go into that picture. Um, and they probably all sum up in this sense of mystery about that photo, you know, and I think that's probably what spoke to me. I mean, I vividly remember seeing that image and we would go over and I'd go look for it because it wasn't a huge print. It was probably an eight by 10. Um, and I think that was a four by five image, um, the way it was taken, but it it was very vivid in my mind of, of that being a big favorite of mine. I had no idea who made the image at that time. Didn't ask. It was just, there was something captivating of it. And then later in, in life after, you know, becoming interested in photography and, uh, you know, particularly Arnold Newman and all those portraits he did and seeing that image and, and realizing, you know, it's one of the greatest images ever made from a portrait standpoint. Uh, of course, and you could say that for a lot of, of Newman's work. I mean, he was just amazing. You know, because it's amazing because I don't have a particular image that stands out for me. Really? Which I speak to a lot of photographers and they can always sort of speak to that first moment that they saw a photograph from Avedon or from Leibovitz or... Sure, sure. Well, I, and let me clarify too. I don't know if it was like, you know, it made me want to run out the next day and get a camera. But I think, you know, that that seeing that image and, you know, we'd go over to, to you know, Greg's house for dinner and, and I'd go look for that image. Um, and, you know, it was kind of always on my mind as being captivating and probably... I don't know, probably at that age, I don't know if I was exposed to just a lot of stuff like that in terms of an iconic photograph. And that one certainly is. Um, yeah. And I don't know if you, it, you know, different people come into it from 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 different. I mean, how did you get interested if there wasn't a specific image? What was it that made you fascinated with with a camera? Well, I, I was at a member of the Boys Club of Hollywood mm. and listeners have probably heard this story a couple of times over. But sure. uh, I was a member there, and one of the counselors who I had befriended was a photo buff. Hmm. And there was a dark room right opposite his office that had fallen into disuse. And he fixed it up, cleaned it up, bought chemicals, the trays. They had some really old German cameras, hmm. those box cameras that were probably made during the 50s. They were 35 millimeter. They weren't like us, but they were, they were these bulky very unattractive looking cameras, very functional cameras. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had two photojournalist friends that he knew come down and show about seven or eight of us how to load ca- uh, film into a camera, how to expose, and then later on come into the dark room, load the film into the reels, develop the reels, and make a print. And when I saw that 
picture uh, appear and the developer, I was I was just hooked. Mm-hmm. And then after a couple of weeks, if not months, most of the other kids had lost interest. But as soon as I would get to the club, I'd ask for the keys. And I'd <laughs> I go in it. there and there would just be film there and there'd be chemistry. And I would just grab the camera and I would shoot around the, the club or I'd walk out around the Hollywood area and make photographs. And, and I don't think I was particularly excited about the image making, but there was something about what was happening in the darkroom, creating a print that made it really very exciting for me. You know, it's, what's interesting about that too, you, you mentioned like the magic moment of when you first see an image come up in chemicals on the paper. Oh, yeah, it's magic. And, yeah, it is. And it's such a driving force to, to go make more. <laughs> it's a weird moment. It's kind of sad, I think, that, that, you know, with younger photographers now who come into digital, they don't get that moment. Yeah, because it seems like it's so pivotal for so many people. I think so. It was for me. I mean, you know. Yeah, it's 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 one thing to to look at your your images made up of pixels up on a computer screen, and it's and it really is sort of mystical because where there was nothing, now there's something, and you can physically hold it in your hand, and you have this tactile experience. I get I get a semblance of that when I make a, a digital print. Sure. You know, and just holding it and go, I made this. And there's yeah, a sense yeah, of pride yeah. that's associated with it. And I think you can have something of what I and many other people experienced in the darkroom if you make the print. But I always think that you're falling short of the complete experience of making photographs if the images are only relegated to your computer screen or Flickr or 500px. It's like, oh, sure. There's, there's one, there's one more step that you're missing. There is. I mean, and the sad thing is, is, I mean, even with my own work is that's the output that a lot of it is. I mean, it, it, I'll use things for illustrative purposes in podcasts or, you know, it goes on my website and it's, it's, you got to remember to print your stuff sometimes. I mean, most of my work, that's the distribution and it's a very powerful end of distribution. But what's weird is like, you know, you were saying too, you know, we were kind of talking about how we both came into photography and mine was an image experience and yours was, was kind of this, this, um, you know, hands-on darkroom approach kind of thing. And I think that's what makes photography so interesting to me as opposed to, I don't know, trying to think of something else that I can't equate to because, you know, you have this side of it that's, that's artistic, that it's visual, it's compositional. And then you, you have a physical side where you're actually making something like in the case of a print, whether it's digital or whether it's darkroom or, or, you know, I've always been fascinated with, I don't do it very well, but, but with, with, um, you know, antique film processes like collodion or, or cyanotypes is that, you know, they're, they're one of a kind, you know, they're not really even designed to be mass produced. And then you, there's chemistry and then there's physics and, and there's all these wonderful things. There's optics that go into photography that keep it very interesting. I think at all times for, for anyone, you know, yeah. but I, I agree with you too. It's, it is kind of, I think you have to remember that and, and remember to hit that on all sides. I remember, you know, in the early 2000s where everything, there seemed to be like the film versus digital debate was in full swing. And that was always – and I've never looked at photography that way. It's like, you know, if it's all a means of making an image in the end. And sure, there's a digital process to that and maybe it ends up being a JPEG most of its life or maybe you do print it out or – you know, it's just different ways of making something. I don't think it's an either or ever, you know, and I think they, you've seen a resurgence of that in recent years, particularly with alternative process. Uh, you know, a lot of the work that, that Mark Osterman and Fran Scully have done with the Kodak Museum and, and uh, you know, wet plate has made a comeback. There are people that shoot that or pinhole even. And, you know, I think you see a genuine I get emails a lot from from viewers that 
you know, are really excited about that. And, and for whatever reason, just never understood how easy it would be to get into things like that. And, you know, I have a bunch of episodes that I did on how to develop your own negatives. And, you know, I think they really start to see that magic in that process. You know, certainly I think particularly with what I do with my day job, the work has to be digital because of the speed that I'm expected to turn it around sometimes and the ease of use. And if you add scanning into that equation, it's just not going to be practical. Um, but I always come back to that, you know? Yeah. I was, I was, I was trying to think about why it is the, the print is creates such a different experience for me personally. And I think may, some of it may be as a result of just of the fact that that's, that's how I discovered photography. But you know, I've there's certain photographs that I see them on the screen or even see them in a book. Yeah, it's not the same. Yet, yet when I see a print, whether it's mine, whether it's another photographer's that's sitting in a in a gallery, or whether they're just pulling it out of their archive, there's something about having that white border. Yep. Around the image that elevates the image in in some way, and I think that part of it is that. I'm completely free of any distractions. It's sort of this intimate moment that I'm happening that's that I'm having not only with the f- photograph but with the photographer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think you could make that case too. I mean, I think at some levels if you uh I mean, Ansel Adams is a is a huge influence on me in many ways and I don't particularly do cartwheels over his work with landscapes I mean, they're, they're incredible stuff. And he influences me as a, as a printer. I mean, there's, there's other things other than that, but like, you, you know, knowing Ansel's work and knowing that he made every one of those by hand, when you see one of those prints, it's almost like this is something Ansel gave me, you know, to look mm-hmm. at. It, it really is a, a, I think a very um, bonding connection with the artist uh, in that sense. You know, not every photographer did their own printing, but I think in those cases, it's ultra special. But even when they didn't do their own printing, they, I agree with you. There's something about that physical thing that you're looking at that really is a connection. Even it, like a guy like Henri Cartier-Bresson who did really did not do his own printing, but it was his vision. And that print is the product of that. Yeah. I remember when I finally saw a print of Ansel Adams, I was like, oh yeah, those are nice. Sure. Yeah. I'm not really particularly excited. And I went to the Ansel Adams gallery in San Francisco at the time. And I looked and I went, oh, this is what everybody's been talking about. It's amazing. And in fairness, I have, I have yet to see a reproduction of one of Ansel's prints. I don't know why, I don't know what the voodoo is there, but it's, when you see those in person, they are, it's, it's, they're almost like different photographs. I've never seen a book. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, You know, it's interesting too. Do you remember, um, oh gosh, this would have probably been about five years ago. Uh, someone, this was around the time that Vivian Mayer kind of had been, um, was being pushed and had been discovered, so to speak. And somebody had found what they believed to be some Ansel Adams negatives in a garage sale. Do you remember this? Oh yes. Yes. I remember. And it it was, it was funny because like, okay, so it was similar to the Vivian Mayer thing and that someone had happened upon these negatives and they believed them to be Ansel's and, there was controversy surrounding it. Therefore it got a lot of press and, and Ansel's son who runs the estate was basically saying, no, they're definitely not. Uh, they had curators look at them to analyze uh, what was going on in the picture that may have been indicative of not being a time when Ansel would have been in Yellowstone or whatever it was. And this, anyway, this, this guy who had come upon these, these prints, it, these negatives was making prints for sale out of these things. And it's just so funny to me that I thought, how can anyone, I mean, he's disappeared off the planet now, but Mm -hmm. he's missing the boat because Ansel printed those, those images himself. So you cannot, 
take a negative that Ansel printed and pull it off as an Ansel Adams because you obviously don't understand Ansel. That yeah. was half of it, you know, uh, even if they were his. And it's just it was really bizarre to see somebody try to capitalize on that because they were clearly missing that point. Um, but, you know, it's also interesting because there is kind of that human nature. Um, it's this fantasy of, of happening upon something in the garage sale that was discarded that is really important, you know, that, that is a treasure item to come out with. And so I think that's why that story is interesting. I think that's why Vivian Mayer is very interesting to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, you know, it's almost the fact that nobody knew about her that that it creates a mystique around it, you know. You know, when I think about the traditional photographic process as compared to digital, I think digital makes the manipulation or the enhancement or whatever word you want to use uh, mm -hmm. for it uh, more accessible sure. to the average photographer. Uh, and I think for the most part, before that with film, um, they they surrendered a lot of control to their lab, the, the technician would pretty much create an interpretation of those negatives on, on the machine or whether they were hand printing them. Uh, and it may have involved some, some say from the photographer, but for the large part, the, the, the large majority of photographers never really had much control over the end product unless they had their own darkroom. That's very interesting. And I love the, the word you use is interpretation in there. Cause I think that's what it is, you know? Uh, in many ways and, and whether it's the artist interpreting their own work. I mean, you know, Ansel used to say that, that, uh, you know, the print was like conducting an orchestra. Yeah. Uh, you have the score, which is the negative and you, then the darkroom becomes the musicians and it's going to be a little bit different every time and based on your interpretation, which, which I really like that, that analogy. You know, it's interesting too. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, I don't know if you're familiar with, with Tom Burrell's work. Uh, Tom did a lot of, Oh, started off doing pinholes, uh, landscapes of New York City, and then moved into these botanical things that were very reminiscent of Carl Blasfeld and some other stuff. And he kind of enjoyed a lot of popularity in the oh, mid to late 90s. Uh, and has kind of disappeared a little bit now. But anyway, extremely good photographer. And his er, first job was he was Robert Maplethorpe's printer. Mm -hmm. And at one point years and years ago, it's a long story, but I got to do an interview with, with Tom and he's always been a huge influence on me and I really love his work. And so of course that was interesting to ask him about Maplethorpe and literally he would just sit in the dark room for 10 hour days and doing different things. Maplethorpe would come in and say, yeah, no. And he said he really didn't, but it was an interesting relationship though, because they're two very different people, but they did have a relationship where Maplethorpe would come down and really trust his skills as that technician in the darkroom doing that interpretation. You know, it wasn't a, uh, oh, that's not right. I'll know it when I see it kind of thing. But there was, you know, it required a lot of level, a large level of skill, I think, to operate in the darkroom and to be able to, to do that. And of course, when you do that, um, I'm sure that those guys dealt with a number of photographers who had kind of probably questionable exposures at times, <laughs> and, you know, film processing and all the things that they couldn't control, you know. In fact, I've heard that about Bressant too, that, that a lot of times he would be overexposed or dramatically underexposed. And there was a lot of um, blood, sweat and tears trying to make that work in a darkroom. So yeah, I think it's kind of fascinating that, you know, despite the fact that digital has made things relatively easier, and I use that mm -hmm. word really, really loosely, um, that it's it's allowed people to experiment that much more, but I think they've also been sort of confined or limited by this uh, by these procedures that other photographers are practicing, you know, and then develop these mm -hmm. actions or they develop these presets and you know and they and they sh share their these techniques either for free or for um, you know or for or for a fee, 
and that photographers sort of embrace it because they really are appealed to the look. And, and I think that a lot of people don't take advantage of the fact that they have a real powerful tool in front of their hands that allows them to manipulate it and discover their own processes. I think of uh, Roy well, Dickerama. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. But, but you know, I think that when I think about Roy Dickerama and mm-hmm. W. Eugene Smith, I mean, they're both known as amazing, amazing photographers. But they both came to the print with a very unique individual style. I mean, I look at Dickerama's prints, and no one since or now prints like that. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And and. And I think that, wow, there's so much, op- I mean, now there are so much opportunities to have much greater control than those photographers did. And I know that there are photographers out there that really are sort of embracing it. Mm. But mm. sometimes I feel that, you know, that in all that we've gained with this, the technology, we may have lost sort of the incentive to really explore and test the limits of, of what we have until someone else comes, you know, that one person comes along and does it. And then everyone is like, wow, I never thought I could, or I had permission to go That's there. Really an interesting way of looking at that too. And I hadn't thought of it that way. Cause you're right. As, as far as what we have with technology, we have way more than we've ever had in the history of photography right now. And, but it's, it's the way people choose to interact with that. I think that that is, it, and, and sometimes I think maybe that's uh, – I hesitate to use the word generational because I don't see it as specific age range of people who do this. Yeah. But but you're right. It's just this this instant gratification kind of approach to what we do. And I mean, gosh, I remember when I was learning how to do darkroom. Man, I burned hours in there. Very frustrating with no results and because you're learning. You don't have that kind of control. Whereas, I mean, like you look at Adobe Photoshop or even Lightroom now and – you know, I mean, oh my gosh, the control you have in there is on this finite level that we've never even seen before. But yeah, it's like there is this desire to, I mean, I've had people email me after I did the Saul Leader episode because, you know, his color has such a wild look to it. Uh, and they're like, you know, do you know of any Lightroom presets that'll get that for me? Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, no, one, I mean, I'm sure there probably are if you go Google, but I, you know, but don't, don't just get in there to copy Saul with a different technology. Why don't you you know, work with that and try to do something that's new, you know, I don't know. It's just, it, it's interesting. Um, my favorite phrase, I can't, I can't remember who said it, but the, you know, the cover bands don't change the world. And I mean, I do it too. I mean, it's easy to find people you yeah. like and you want to emulate that style. And I think if, if you're starting out, I think there's a lot of merit and a lot of things you can, you can get out of that, but you're never going to do it by just applying presets to something. Um, you know, yeah. starting with a look even. And, and I think it's more like learning what you can do and applying that and discovery and a lot of trial and error and a lot of error to get there, you know. If you want to get a real sense of what Squarespace can do for you, you don't have to look any further than the website to the photographers who are currently using the service. You can check out the sites of Rick Salmon, Colin Hughes, Paul Nicklin, and Dina Goldstein, and see how they each take the various templates that Squarespace offers and make it their own. These are not cookie-cutter websites, but clean and professional websites that will make you and your work look great. Try it out for yourself today and take advantage of the 14-day free trial. You don't need a credit card, just create an account and just enjoy yourself. 
When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off and to show your support for the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. When it comes to lynda.com, I've come to enjoy their site not just for the great photography instruction they provide, but also these wonderful documentaries they've produced. If you're looking for inspiration as well as instruction, lynda.com delivers with documentaries on great photographers like Douglas Kirkland, Richard Kochi Hernandez, and Jerry Ulsman and Maggie Taylor. If watching these documentaries don't inspire you to go out and pick up a camera, well, nothing will. And you can watch them now for free. I've worked out a special deal with lynda.com to provide you with unlimited access to the entire library for seven days. Visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to use it for a week. That's lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to start your seven day free trial and help support the show. Yeah. And there's something to be said that, you know, about learning process from, you know, emulating somebody else. So I think that's, that's, that's not the poo poo uh, doing those things, but I sure. think at no, some no, point we all. have to take it to an, to another level. You know, I was, I was listening to a conversation between uh, Jeffrey Sidoris and Bill Wadman on their, on their mm-hmm. show. And um, they, they, they made the point that uh, something along the lines of like that, you know, we have all these opportunities to learn, photography, not just in magazines and books, but online and all this myriad of ways that we get this photo education. But all that education means not a damn thing if you don't go out and and practice and actually oh, go out and make and make photographs. And I and I'm wondering for you, here you are, both at your job and with your personal time, you're you're dedicating a lot of time to looking at images, researching. Um, do you find yourself, even though you're as 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 aware of the process and everything involved in it as you are, that you yourself fall into that trap of being immersed in consuming content but not really creating it. No question. I mean, I, I yeah, absolutely, and particularly particularly the last year, and it's because there's a master plan at work here. But you know, it's like. I, you know, for those of you who don't know, I do have a day job. I work at an art museum and it, there are periods where that gets very demanding and the periods where it's less demanding. And I do that podcast on the side and I'm you know, teaching, constantly doing other things. And there, I go through periods where it's just not physically possible for me to get out and take a lot of, of images. Hardy, hang on, I'm going to cough. <laughs> Sorry. <coughs> it's not like I'm getting all choked up there. Uh, but anyway, uh, so – I kind of have two ways of viewing that. I mean, part of me gets very frustrated because I don't have that kind of time sometimes. And, you know, I, you know, creating images that are going to push me artistically or that I'm going to feel proud of that, that is very time consuming. And of course, consuming content or even creating content is a little, a little less consuming. And so it's easier just to, to continue to do those. I mean, I'm like everybody else. I love to get on Google Plus and just, you know, ramble through people's images or go on Flickr or 500px or whatever that is. Um, but at the same time, I've, in the last couple of years, I've kind of taken a different approach to this. Now, if you're making your living as a photographer and you must produce images, this is totally different. Um, and I do that to an extent with the museum job. And I don't consider like those. I mean, I will take a lot of photos during the week, but those are usually 
I know those aren't things that I'm you know dreaming up or anything. Um, but you know, I had a composition teacher when I was in college and, uh, you know, I, I was studying with him privately over the summer and I remember he was kind of an eccentric fellow anyway. And, and he was always, you know, carrying on about something. And one day he came in and he was, we were talking about, um, you know, this range of composers. And he said, if you look at somebody like Mozart and compare it to somebody like Beethoven, he said, you know, Beethoven was, 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 was constipated. He was always thinking about it. His output was, you know, considerably less where Mozart would just, you know, crap stuff and then, you know, brilliant music would come out. And, you know, if you look on the continuum, I think of any art form, whether it be music, whether it be painting, whether it be sculpture, whether it be, uh, you know, literature, whether it be poetry or particularly photography, is you have some people who are just very prolific and they're able to do that at an extremely high level of talent. They're very gifted. And then you have other people on the other end of the spectrum who think about their work a lot more and their output is considerably less, Mm -hmm. but it's of the same quality. And I don't think one is right and one is wrong. It's just, I would rather create images that I think are challenging me artistically and that at least I feel like I'm attempting to say something and I'd rather take less images to do that. So I try not to feel too, and part of that process is, is looking at other work and talking about photographers and, and study and that kind of thing too. So, you know, and, or, you know, we can cut the BS too. Maybe that's an excuse as to why I haven't produced any images lately. I don't know, but you know, whatever that is, I mean, I would rather take more time to do a better quality work than just put a bunch of stuff up on Flickr that is not as good. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I've been going through that same process myself. And sure, and, and, and I think I think for anybody, whether that's you or me or somebody maybe listening that feels the same way, I think it is important to remember that because you don't want to come down on yourself ever um, for lack of creative output. Let's say um, because that's it, it's supposed to be a personal voice expression of something. It's supposed to be. I mean, photography is yours before it belongs to anybody else. I mean, in any great photographer, I think. You know, I think philosophically could you could make that claim to. I mean, you know, Arnold Newman made images that he thought needed to be made. He doesn't didn't do them for commercial. I mean, he did do them for commercial money. But I mean, uh, knowing people who worked for Arnold, he was very funny about that. And it had to be his way. And he got to a position where he could command to do that in a professional environment. But, you know, photography should be for you. And and I'm hoping to have things sorted out because I do have two ideas for um, kind of at this point, I wouldn't even call them a series, but but explorations that I want to do with photography that uh, hopefully this summer will we'll carve some time to do. But I don't want to push those into a cramp schedule right now and, and do poor work, you know. Um, so I try not to come down too hard on myself for it. But it it is tough to juggle. I mean, you know, life gets in the way and and, uh, you know, and some of it could be how you spend your time, too. I mean, I could elect to stop doing my podcast easily. Um, it takes a lot of time to do. Um, but I do that for a different reason, you know, probably similar to why you produce this show. I mean, you're interacting with an audience, um, sharing knowledge and information and stories about photography is really important. And, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's more important to do it than to not do it. You know yeah. what I mean? That's why I do it. You know, I don't make a lot of money at it. And just like you do with this show, it's, it's passion driven. You know, I was, I was writing in the other day about uh, looking at my podcasting as compared to my photography and how I felt about it. Mm-hmm. And, and my journey as a podcaster has been filled with, you know, uh, mistakes uh, some bigger, some smaller, a <laughs> lot of experimentation. I hear you. Um, uh, a willingness to 
you know, to, to fall on my face and, and, and fail, you know, amazingly so. Uh, yet I've not felt the sort of the anxiety, uh, the, the self-doubt, uh, the sometimes self-loathing <laughs> that mm-hmm. that sometimes comes around with my my photography, and I'm, and I was wondering what 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 was it about it? And hmm. when I think about it, I think that at the time, that a big part of it was that when I started the show, there wasn't really anything out there like it. Right. So I didn't have anyone else or anything else to really compare myself to. Like you mentioned, there were other podcasts, largely that were talking about equipment. But the fact that I did not have, you know, someone who I, I was aspiring to be mm, as far as this format really provided me a lot of uh, of freedom and allowed me to to jump into it, even though I like knew virtually nothing. But I was I was so I was so driven by the vision that this was something that I not only wanted to do but needed to do that uh, I embraced it all, uh, the, the glories and the and the failures. I think that's amazing. It's interesting because like, yeah, almost like that lack of pressure allowed you to just, you're not self-editing as much, you know, like with photography, when I, when I put stuff up, I mean, sometimes, and I put doozies online too, but I mean, you know, when I, if I'm doing a show though, I get really nervous and I haven't done one in a while, but because you're, I don't know, maybe it's because your soul's wrapped up in the photography thing, but you're right. Podcasting is a little different. And uh, maybe it's because it's not the first drive that makes it because I've I've had similar experience with mine. It's like I'm not afraid to fail because if I fail, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. I'll just do another show and keep it going. But, uh, yeah, it's it's just very different in, the, in that regard. But, you know, even with those failures and with the experimentation and, you know, I mean, and let's both be honest, it takes a lot of time to do these. Um, the reward is. I'm having this conversation now, let's say, and that's what's very valuable to me is meeting people like you or sometimes, you know, we've done meetups for the show. And when you actually get to meet people and and something that you've done rang a bell with them and maybe they're sharing an experience that they had taking it a step further. And that happens a lot, particularly with darkroom stuff. Um, you know, you'll meet somebody who's like, hey, I watched your episodes on this and I'm in the darkroom and I've been doing these. And it's like, whoa, that's really cool. You took it somewhere else. And, and that's, what's fun about all this stuff. I think, um, I wish more people, well, you know, it would, would, would share knowledge like that or, or put stuff out there. It's, it's, it's a rare thing, I think, but yeah. you know, well, like you said, you know, you, you, uh, putting out your show and as involves a lot of work Yeah, and, absolutely. and there are a lot of other things you could be doing with your time, your personal yeah. time. So why, why do you do it? Why do you keep doing it when, you know, you know that how much it's demanding of you and, and, and following that, tell me what you're aspiring for the, the, the show and uh, the other shows that, uh, sure. That uh, with the reason, the two reasons I do it, um, are I mean, one, it's a conversation and it's something that is kind of outwardly social and it turns on that exchange of ideas, um, and I've met friends. I've, I've, uh, you know, come in contact with a lot of people because I mean, I, if I didn't do the show, we, you and I wouldn't know each other, for instance, you know, and, and that's what, that's one reason I do it. I think it's important. I think the other reason it's important is because, and then this may be just fallen into by accident, but it's really important to talk about guys like Fred Herzog or Dean Arbus or whoever, because I just don't see a lot of that going on online, um, in that capacity, 
with that kind of dedication. So I kind of feel a responsibility somewhat and I, which is kind of pathetic because I'm not even that great at it. You know, I mean, it, it's, but, but it, it's almost like there's, there's this, this, this element that's forgotten. And, and honestly, a lot of the internet is driven by this commercial side and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and but I see shows, I see photography blogs, I see a lot of things out there that are designed to drive affiliate sales and for a commercial aspect. And I don't mm-hmm. think that that is really helping photography. You know, when people consult Wikipedia as like the ultimate source on things, well, it generally is a really accessible source. It ranks high in Google and all that. And and I I just feel like what I want to do with my show is try to provide just something a little bit deeper uh, as best I can. Um, and, and for those who want it, you know, um, and that's, that's kind of why I continue to do it. It's something I believe in, you know, it's something that I've done for a while and I'm very connected to, but I think that's, those are the two things is one, I think there's something to talk about with photography and two, I think that I do it because it's weird. It's, but I, I believe it's a conversation. It's a one way conversation a lot of times because I'm doing all the talking on the camera. Uh, but then when you actually meet people and you get response and emails and stuff, then it's different. Then I, then you can start conversing back and forth, but it's something you started, you know, yeah. and, uh, things aren't going to come to you. You got to get out there and do it yourself sometimes. And that's, that's kind of, you know, uh, I wish that I had more time to put into it sometimes. I mean, mine is very, uh, you're talking about what I, where did all this going down the road? I mean, uh, you know, I, sometimes, you know, to do this, consistently and make it sustainable, you know, I tend to have a camera setup that I use for a long period of time before I change it. And, you know, and there's little things like that and you have an editing process and you try to get it out. And I felt too, that sometimes, you know, where I would like to go is, is have the time to put into it, to do something that's a little bit different. I mean, I think ideally what would be wonderful is to produce something that's on par with some of, uh, you know, like television production or a mini series or a documentary level of stuff. And I'll never do that with just me in front of a camera, but you know, that would be fun to go there one day to create possibilities or whatever that, you know, maybe somebody who has a lot of money to invest hint, hint would see it and want, you know, I'm speaking hypothetically, but, but, you know, I like continuing that conversation. And one thing I, you know, I think for me on a very smaller level is that, you know, I've, I've had a video podcast and video is a weird form to podcast in. And it's weird how, um, YouTube and iTunes are two very different beasts on that. And I have people that came to know who, what I do through iTunes and people who came to know it through YouTube. And it's just a very different approach. Um, the YouTube crowd is much more, you talk too much in the beginning and you get straight to the point. Whereas the iTunes crowd, I think because especially in Europe, when people download these and put them on their, their phones for their commute to work, they want that longer experience. And so I, you know, I felt like it's kind of cutting between somewhere. So I'd like to do an audio podcast one day that, that I don't have to deal with video on, or I'd like to do things that maybe. Um, are not dependent on an episode coming out every week. Uh, so like, you know, Hey, let's do a documentary on Fred Herzog and, you know, maybe find somebody, you know, people who are living that we can still do interviews with and, and continue that before they move on. So I, I, and I've tried, um, (laughs) I'm going to New York at the end of the month and I've done New York twice this year and there are two photographers and I don't want to see who they are because I'll jinx it. But, um, but that I wanted, you know, I've said, Hey, I have a podcast. I'd like to interview you because I think you're amazing. And, a lot of it's just trying to get schedules worked out. Most people are respect, receptive to it. But, oh, you're um, preaching to the choir there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you do an interview every week. And I mean, I don't even know how you, you begin to try to wrangle schedules. I mean, mine's just dependent on when I can do it. So, you know, um, I only have to manage me, you know. Uh, before I ask you my last question, I'm, sure. I'm, I'm curious as to um, 
what resources you you use to filter through all the noise uh, in um, order to sort of find find those 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 gems and you know you're doing a lot of the same kind of work that I'm doing behind the scenes for our respective shows and I'm kind of curious to hear yeah um well from a research standpoint I mean as far as like you know, Pinterest is one of my favorite. I mean, this sounds so goofy to say because you know you, you think of Pinterest and you think of soccer moms shopping for clothes, but but being able to bookmark images online and being able to see what other people have bookmarked—that's a wonderful discovery right there. Um, particularly when you just start, you know, when when you've bookmarked something and Pinterest recognizes that someone else has bookmarked it, and they'll say, "Hey, would you like to look at their board entitled 1950s black and white photography or whatever?" Mm -hmm. And then you go look in there and you find images that just you had never seen before, and it. it it's exciting. And so I think Pinterest is in a weird way, a wonderful tool for that kind of thing. Um, and then the other thing, I mean, I'm a book junkie, um, probably to the point where I have a severe addiction problem with it. Um, I've been better in recent years because I ran out of shelf space, but, um, I've got a handful of books that I think that are just amazing. Um, and sometimes they're monographs on specific artists and sometimes, uh, you know, the Time Life series that came out in the 80s has actually got some gems in there. In fact, some of my favorite books for darkroom stuff are, are like, you know, the old Ansel Adams books. And yeah. then there were a whole host of them that followed that used to tell you. This is back when people used to mix their own developer, for instance. And sometimes just weird stuff like that that didn't even really – um, important seemingly today, um, inspires ideas for podcasts, uh, you know, or what have you, uh, you know, and that, and a lot of long tail Google searching, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, especially I get stuck sometimes when, you know, there's something that seems pretty obvious, but you need to go prove it before you can say something about it. And I'll give you an example. And, and specifically when, when I was talking about, um, you know, uh, the relationship between Sonder and, and Dean Arbus. And, you know, there was an obvious influence on Dean Arbus in that. And, uh, you know, having to go back through and actually find it. And actually, if you Google enough and, and you end up finding that several people said, oh, so-and-so, and then you can find it in this book or whatever, and that can lead to other things. But yeah, I mean, it's just, I think part of it is just constantly keeping my ear to the ground. I keep text files on my computer. And if I think of an idea, I'll go pop it in there. And sometimes I refer back to those. Sometimes I don't. And then sometimes you get into a role doing episodes where the next episode seems fairly logical. So, you know, recently when I got back into doing a lot of these just shows on well-known photographers, um, Fred Herzog was a very natural follow-up to Saul Leader. Um, here's a guy that's not a big name. A lot of people won't know about much like Saul Leader, but, and he was a colorist in the same era. Uh, and then if I'm going to do both those guys, well, we haven't done William Eggleston and William Eggleston is very controversial and a lot of people really don't like his work, but it's very valuable in the oeuvre of photography as a whole. So it needs to be discussed. And then you have, I think Gordon Parks, just because when I was searching for color photographs, um, you know, on those three gentlemen, uh, I came across a couple images by Gordon that I just loved, although he's much different. And I think his legacy is different than those guys. So I saved that, you know, so there's another show and, and those kind of do themselves in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, you get requests from people a lot. Um, so it just depends. Uh, but I think definitely because, there's a lot of photographers you can get into schools of thought with or, you know, a long time ago, it's like I think I did one on Robert Frank, which led to Henri Cartier-Bresson, you know, and then you have the street slash war photography stuff that people were doing at that time. So a lot of those will, will chain into one another and, uh, you know, 
I, I try to like one of my favorite places to go and I live in Dallas is we have a wonderful used bookstore here called Half Price Books, which is this ginormous structure that you go in and they just generally have weird, quirky stuff. And so, um, you know, I do a lot of online research, but but I do a lot of offline research as well. You know, I may like have to send you a list to buy me some things. Absolutely. Send it away. <laughs> we'll, uh, <laughs> or, if, or if you don't have a used bookstore, I mean, there's always Powell's up in Seattle, which is That's always true. amazing, yeah. too. And they do mail order. So. Uh, so my last question that I ask sure. each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've anyone. long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Uh, I thought I was going to have to think harder about this and somebody just popped into my mind. I I think somebody that I would – Oh gosh, you're going to get me on a roll and I'll, I won't stop. Um, okay. Uh, there's a couple that I think people need to know. One of them is Joseph Hoffner. Um, if, if you Google his name and, and I'll spell this out for you because I can't hang on. I can't do it. I've got to Google it. So Google's my spell check too. Joseph Hoffner. Here it is. Okay. So it's, it's Joseph J-O-S-E-F Hoffner, which is H-O-F-L-E-H. N-E-R. And uh, his, I think his most visible, um, he's an Austrian photographer who is alive and working today. Uh, works in black and white. So if people who are into Michael Kenna and guys like that, it, it'll, it'll resonate with them because he has a real high contrast um, but beautiful, uh, lush black and white look. Uh, he did a series of images down on uh, – I can't remember the name of the airport. It's, it's down in the Caribbean. It was St. Martin is the island. Hang on. I've got to look for this, uh, you know, where the basically the runway is right over the beach. And so there's this bizarre set of surreal photos that he did in black and white where these airplanes look like they're you know, he shot in wide angle. So it looks like they're like four foot above people's heads that are sunbathing. Um, but he also does an enormous amount of travel photography and a lot of long exposure and a lot of beautiful work. Um, when I one of the there, when I go to New York, there are two galleries that I generally will hit every time because one, they're free and two, they show great work. And one of them is Bonnie Ben Ruby. And she actually died this last year, but her gallery is still there. And I saw an exhibition of, of uh, Hofner's work up there uh, and was really taken back. Um, you know, these prints were probably four feet by four feet. He shoots Hasselblad square images. And I just think that he has a lot to say. Uh, sometimes it's humorous. Sometimes it's odd. Sometimes it's bizarre, whimsical. I think he's he's somebody that, um, you know, people should know. I, you know. He's just the guy who came to mind. And I've already thought of three more that I could lay on you. But, um, but you know, actually, I, let me leave you with two suggestions here. I will leave you with Joseph Hofliner is the artist that I would go look at um, or the photographer. I think the other thing is to try to find – like for instance, I mentioned when I go to New York, there's two galleries I hit every time. One of them is Bonnie Ben Ruby and uh, the other I am blanking on the name and I will look that up for you in just a second here. But uh, but if you find places like that that are kind of sources for – and I think of galleries as being this way because they are – they're working with younger photographers and younger artists, and sometimes they can lead you to discover people you hadn't thought of before. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm I found a new love affair with Joseph Hoffner. I'm looking. Oh, have you, right did you pull him up? Oh my god! Yeah, it's amazing. This is and I, I can't remember where these images with the airplanes were taken. It's it's that. St. Juliana Airport, I believe it's in St. Martin or one of those. I, I have not been down there, so I can't tell you, but it's it's kind of a famous runway. Well, people uh, are going to have fun with this. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm seeing stuff here that really excites me about how um, photographers use space. You know, absolutely, and, and that, and this is just, 
what I like about these images is is just how how it reminds me how we see and and don't see our our natural environment because most of us live in towns and cities. Mm-hmm. And when I see a photographer who takes that very same raw material and makes something extraordinary out of it, like he is, uh, it, it really shakes me up in terms of how I'm seeing, you know, my world, my neighborhood, my city. And this is the kind of stuff that gets me excited. So thank, yeah, thanks it's for cool. That. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, that's it's amazing stuff. The other, by the way, the other gallery I mentioned is Howard Greenberg, um, and Howard Greenberg is a very different gallery because they are going to deal more in. Oh, people who have, you know, the dead famous guys. So they'll have Bresson Prince and Stecken and guys like that. But but then you discover there's a discovery there, though, because I remember uh, Heinrich Kuren, uh, who was an Austrian photographer, who was part of the kind of the photo secession movement. Uh, so, you know, Stieglitz and some of those guys, he was a contemporary of theirs and he did a lot of these early autochrome works. And I was not familiar with his work at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was they did a show of his at the Howard Greenberg Gallery. And so anytime you can go discover new things, whether it's something that happened you didn't know about or whether it's something that's going on right now that you didn't know about, I think that that's that's an important thing to do, you know. And both these galleries have websites too, so you can just keep an eye on those too, you know. So where can people go to find out more about you and your and your work? Oh, I don't know if they want to know more about me. <laughs> no, they could uh, – theartofphotography.tv is the uh, podcast website. And then like everyone else in the world, I'm in the process of overhauling my website and my blog. But that is tedforbes.com. But that, that there's nothing really to see there of any wonder right now. But the, the photography stuff I do is all at theartofphotography.tv. So. Well, Ted, thank you so much. I cool. really had fun talking to you. Abari Next, thank you. This has been uh, my pleasure. Um, I'm a big fan of your show for a long time, and it's um, I'm, I'm thrilled and, and flattered to have been asked to be on it. So. Thank you for joining us. You can show your continued support for the work we do here at TCF by making donations of any amount using PayPal. By clicking on the links in the show notes or on the website, your contributions help us to improve the show. Each episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you with the contributions of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music is available via incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.